Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Joe Works, and uh, with that brief cameo, but now a major uh, person on the screen, uh, Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Hi, Jeff. You did that on purpose. You <laughs> waited five seconds late so that I would come in early. <laughs> Join, joining me is Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Chase. Hey, Joe, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. And behind the scenes, we have Drew DeGrotto, who's taking care of the technical things. And in front of uh, the scenes, we have uh, Jeff Smelser, who is also taking care of some technical things. And who doesn't know how to use Facebook. Uh, but we are thankful to be live uh, this afternoon and to be able to re-initiate uh, our studies. Um, you're going to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to take a look at that this afternoon, Lord willing. And we encourage you to uh, have, if you have any questions, if you have any comments um, in agreement or disagreement with the things that we are presenting, please feel free to uh, jot those down in Zoom or in uh, Facebook, assuming we're there. Um, uh, in the in the comment section, we'll try to monitor that and respond to those in as timely a fashion as we can. Um, I'm thankful to be back with you all and uh, being able to study like this. Uh, it's helpful for me to, to go through a study in this fashion. So we're looking at the book of Philippians and really wanting to focus on the saints at Philippi. And uh, if you notice in Philippians 1 and in verse 1, Paul begins this letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ, in Christ Jesus, who were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, or overseers and deacons, perhaps your translation says. So when we talk about saints, uh, the saints that are in Philippi, for a long time before I began to study the Bible, I thought of saints as always having been uh, people who were deceased but had done extraordinary things in their in their life and uh, had uh, been deemed to be saints. I didn't understand all of the, the details of how that was determined, but certainly had an understanding that I would never reach that degree of sainthood, that that's the kind of sort of things for the, the Mother Teresas of the world who have just, you know, really um, done extraordinary things or uh, maybe a a miracle or something was attributed to uh, occurring within the, their uh, their realm. But that doesn't seem to be the way the word is used here, is it? No. And, and again, just a, another example of how the word gets used in our culture. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I'm no saint, but I, I'm a good person. I'm no saint. Um, and the idea is none of us are saints. But here in the New Testament, a saint is a holy one. In fact, the word that is translated saints is just the plural of the adjective holy. And so it's holies or holy ones. And, uh, and God's people are to be holy. They are made holy by the blood of Christ and set apart from sin. And they are to live sanctified or holy lives. Yeah. And what's really humbling as you read about the word saint is we actually have an idea of who the saints in Philippi were. So I might be jumping the gun. You guys might have had something else you wanted to say about Philippians 1 there. But it's really cool because when you go back and you look at some of the brethren that were actually a part of this local church, it really 
helps us understand oh, these are just ordinary people just like me and you exactly right and and the book also describes some others uh who are saints in that congregation and and what that idea of being a holy one is going to to look like even in the daily lives of individuals but but that's a, a great place to start is to see how the church began and so paul is writing to the saints and he then amplifies that by saying to the bishops and the deacons and so that's the uh those that are uh, uh, over the church uh the the flock there uh, the the overseers deacons is the idea of a servant um, those that have a special role in in serving the congregation but but who would be these saints if we were going to try to figure out uh, within the the story of the church in Philippi where does it get its beginning where, where were you thinking of going uh, chase your mic is off chase Sorry, I have a, uh, a seven-month-old at home, so I'm trying to keep that as quiet as I can. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was thinking about Acts, the 16th chapter, uh, when Paul comes to Philippi, and we read about what really, from our understanding, was like the first convert, um, of course, the woman named Lydia, Acts 16, verses 14 and on. Yeah. So it's, uh, that's what my mind was going to. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. In, in Acts 16, we see uh, Paul and Silas, uh, others uh, arriving at Philippi. They go down to the river where women are gathered to, to pray. The, they speak there. The Lord opens Lydia's heart to receive the things that were uh, being proclaimed. And uh, it says that she's baptized in verse 15 and then immediately begins to show hospitality. Uh, so her life has changed. She has put to death the old woman uh, and been, been buried in baptism. And uh, now she's going to begin serving the Lord as best as she can right out of the gates, really. Um, wanting to, to help to, to support and to, to take care of these uh, men who are traveling the, the world to preach. And so we look at her life and be somewhat impressed by, you know, here she is, she's down at the river praying, she immediately shows hospitality, you know, uh, that might just seem like, okay, I can see how somebody like that is, uh, is a saint, uh, that's, you know, uh, seems to have some good character about her, the things that she's described as one who worshiped God in verse 14, you know, that's not that much of a surprise, is it? But the next guy that we run into there who becomes Christian in Philippi is a jailer who had uh, had Paul and Silas in custody. And um, in Acts, the 16th chapter, I'm going to turn over there real quickly, uh, just so I get the wording here right, so that I remember how it goes. In verse um, 23, when they laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. So he's not the one necessarily who's laying the stripes on them, but he's got these guys who've just been beaten in custody, and he does end up washing their stripes, and they're baptized, but then apparently he still keeps them in custody uh, until the next morning when they, they um, make Paul and Silas make an issue of it when the magistrates want to let them go secretly. Uh, so this jailer becomes a Christian here in this story. Yeah, and so that, that's kind of a surprising story. Uh, he was also one who was not looking for the gospel. Uh, he's not described as a worshiper of God beforehand. Uh, in fact, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit sympathetic to this situation. 
Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns, and the, the keeper of the prison is sleeping. I, I have that sometimes happen whenever I'm preaching. Um, and uh, he, he doesn't seem to really be attuned to the, the message of what's being said, um, but the Lord wakes him up through this earthquake, and it is, uh, uh, the foundations of his life are shaken uh, along with the, the, the prison, and uh, it causes him to, to cry out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Whatever the meaning that he intended there, Paul capitalizes on that and tells him how to be spiritually saved, and uh, he is that, that very night. Um, so uh, maybe one person that we would think of as being, uh, you know, a, a religious person and, and sort of a good candidate for sainthood, and then another one that, well, okay, I'm glad he's saved, but is he really a, a holy one? Uh, yes. As you mentioned earlier, Jeff, it is by the, the blood of Jesus Christ that we are considered to, to be holy before the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the church, which is just people. It's people who are saved. Um, and it describes Christ having sanctified the church, which means to make it holy. Um, in verse 25, husbands are told to love their wives, and Christ is the example in the way that he loved the church. And it goes on to say he gave himself up for it, and then in verse 26, that he might sanctify it or make it holy. Um, and it goes on and says then, with the uh, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The church is the people who are saved by the blood of Christ, and Christ has made them holy by his blood. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And it is just so cool for me to think about how different Lydia and the jailer really are um, in so many different ways. And yet, as we consider the saints in Philippi, consider the fact that these two people will eventually be worshiping in the same house together in the same place. They'll be worshiping God. Their families will be spending time together. And yet they're just so different in, in so many ways. And so th those are really some of the pictures and images that are supposed to be running through our heads as we get into the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. Mm -hmm. um, and also what, what's going to be kind of on the forefront of our minds as well is how Paul leaves Phi, right? Yeah. How he leaves Philippi? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, anytime I think about the, the work that he does with Philippi, I can't help but think that maybe he was hoping to have spent more time with them than he initially did. Uh, he ends up getting ran out of Philippi, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, so they, they want to get rid of him. He demands that the magistrates come down and, and see him uh, personally so that they don't leave with a bad reputation for the, the gospel's sake, it seems, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I just think it's really cool to see Paul, I think, maybe sticking out his neck for uh, using his Roman citizenship for the sake of maybe protecting the brethren there. But I also wonder if Paul was wanting to spend more time with the Philippians than what he could. Um, but nonetheless, he'll go on to say in Philippians that the, the Macedonians, the Philippians there, they take care of him. They take care of his need. They support him in his preaching of the gospel. And there's just this very close connection he has with them regardless of the fact that maybe he didn't get to spend as much time with them as he was hoping to. Right. And so thinking about them as saints, and then just recognizing how the language is used. We read Philippians 1.1, but think of this in the terms of brackets. Look how Philippians, the book of Philippians ends in Philippians, the fourth chapter, 
and in verse 21, uh, a lot of times we just sort of glaze over those last verses and just sort of think about them as, uh, you know, sincerely yours kind of writing. Uh, but I believe that there's purpose in this. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, verse 21. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so he began with talking, saying, speaking to the saints, and in Philippians 1, 2, grace to you. He closes this by grace to you, and again, uh, a stress on the saints, both there, those who are visiting, and those that are with Paul. Uh, the world is filled with, with saints. <laughs> um, it's not the exceptional Christian that is a saint. If you are in Christ, then you have been made holy by the blood of Christ, by the grace of God. Um, so we ought not to have in our minds, well, I'm no saint, but no, I am a saint. That's hard to say. Uh, but by the grace of God, not because of me, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I, I have been made holy in God's eyes. And, and that's for, that I'm sorry, go ahead. I, 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 need, I say I need to leave, live, live that way as a result. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, and that, that's kind of the point of the book of Ephesians. The chapter 2 closes with the idea that, that Paul's audience has been made a holy temple, uh, uh, holy again, the idea of saint, sanctified temple, a dwelling place for God. And then in the last three chapters, he says, walk worthily of your calling. Live like that. Live in a manner commensurate with being a saint. Right. And so if it's the gospel that makes us holy— uh, look at what he says there in Philippians 1 and in verse 21 as well. Uh, that's, the, that's the point that he's driving at for, for them uh, in, the same, in very similar fashion as what you just mentioned in, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, what would be a manner that's worthy of the gospel? Uh, you, you live as it teaches you how to live. You, you live following the, the example of Christ. Ephesians 2.5, let this mind be in you, or excuse me, Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the whole book is really pointing us to have this, this holy kind of, of living. I think Philippians 4.8 doesn't mention the word holy. Look at the summation of these things that we ought to be dwelling on. These are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Uh, boy, that sounds pretty holy to me. Our, our thinking needs to be holy. Our meditation needs to be holy. Our actions need to be holy. And, and that doesn't mean we sh should never contemplate evil in the world. Uh, but I tell you, it, it is, it is uh, destructive to just constantly be focusing on everything that's wrong. And right now in the world, that's easy. And I think a lot of people are spending a lot of time just in their internal workings and in within themselves, just griping, thinking, being frustrated with what's going on in the world. Well, righteous Lot vexed his soul from day to day, seeing the lascivious doings of his world, and he was commended for that. But <clears throat> you look at this passage, and I think what it calls us to do is to don't just spend all our time thinking negative thoughts about what's going on in a bad way, 
spend some time thinking about what is good and the blessings of God and, and the high calling of those who are in Christ. We can become dangerously infatuated with the evil that is surrounding us, whether it's in Portland or Washington, D.C. Or, or whatever, whether it's, it's subtle or whether it is riotous, uh, we can become fixated on, on that sort of thing. But what does Paul tell us to, to focus on? Philippians 3, uh, notice what he says in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. We really ought to spend a lot of our time watching how other people who are living godly lives what they're doing and, and how they're doing it so that we can imitate that. Um, you know, it, it's easy for us to just, you know, follow every word of some congressional testimony or of, uh, you know, uh, some whoever's in the news to, today for whatever outrageous thing that they've said. Let's step back and look at what the quiet, godly people are saying and doing. And mm -hmm. it's been dwelling on holy things. Amen. You know, that's a really good point. And, and Paul, in not only the way he lives his life, but also in this letter, there's really three ways that he points out that Christians can have that type of perspective on life, that we're just going to humbly go about life and have a godly lens on when we see things. The first one in verses 12 through 14, Paul is going to talk about the fact that he's in prison um, and talk about that he's in prison because of, of preaching the gospel of Christ. And yet he still points out at the end of verse 13 uh, that throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else and to most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, I have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Um, even in his imprisonment, he's able to teach others and his message is getting spread far and wide. And it's, by the way, it's really cool to think about the, the jailer reading this about Paul also talking to other jailers. Um, that's cool to think about. So he's in prison and yet he has this awesome perspective on it. In verses 15 through 18, really, he's talking about the fact that there's some people out there who are preaching out of selfish motives. Um, they're selfish men. They don't do it out of goodwill, but out of envy and strife. And Paul's response to that is, well, Christ is being proclaimed, isn't it? And, and, and that I will rejoice. Again, I say I will rejoice. Um, and then the third thing he'll point out in the 21 and on is that he might die. That's just the reality of his, his circumstances that he might die. However, if he dies, he gets to go and be with the Lord. And it's like, well, how does somebody have that type of outlook? He, those are three really awful things. If you were like, hey, Chase, make a list of three things that you wouldn't want to happen to you. Dying and going to prison would be two of those things that I don't necessarily want to happen. And yet Paul has still found a way to rejoice in those because he has Christ. Um, and so that's just a really good testament to sainthood and being holy and set apart for God um, is Paul's attitude through those three trials that he'll talk to them about. Good observations. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great example. Um, nice. Um, I'd like thoughts about the, the idea of holiness here. I'd like to go back to, to another word there in Philippians chapter one, verse one, we're talking about the audience he's writing to. And we've talked about, he's writing to saints and we've talked about what that means. But notice how Paul identifies himself and Timothy. Your translation said servants. Uh, this is actually a word that implies slavery. It's a word that means slaves. Um, and, you know, in our culture, uh, 
when we hear slavery, of course, we have all these thoughts about what went on in the history of the United States of America. And um, I'm not trying to say it's entirely different, the kind of slavery Paul and Timothy, uh, Paul, the, the imagery that Paul would have been using as he spoke of him and Timothy. What I am trying to say is this. If we think of slavery as something horrible because you have no uh, right to do what you want to do, you just have to do what somebody else wants to do. Now think of somebody who takes that figure and says, that describes my life as a Christian. I have no right to do what I want to do. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I must do whatever he says. The thing about it is he is a Lord who loves us and knows what is good for us and he and doing what he wants us to do rather than just whatever we want to do is actually the best thing for us. But to be a Christian, to be a saint, a holy one, we have to strip ourselves of this mentality that says, I'm my own boss. No, I have to recognize I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Great, great connection, good good points. And, and the, the, the fact is we have deluded ourselves if we think we ever were independent and making our own choices. Romans 6, 17 through 19 shows us that before we became servants of the Lord, we were slaves of Satan um, uh, and, and of sin. And so we are, we're, we're going to be a slave either of sin and death or of uh, Christ and, and eternal life. And when we dwell on that just a little bit, we, we may think, wow, that's kind of shocking imagery. But I suppose it would have been shocking also in the first century. Slave, slavery was then something that a free man did not want to, 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 he did not want to be in that condition. And those who were free thought of slaves as lesser beings. Aristotle would talk about uh, the different kinds of people in the world. And he would talk about those who were slaves were really born to be slaves. They were, they had less mental capacity in his estimation. They weren't smart enough to know how to govern themselves. And so they were by nature fit for slavery. Now with that concept in the world, think of Paul who voluntarily just says, I'm a slave of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Extremely powerful. Um, and so thinking about being saints, let's not confuse this with some sort of sinless perfection or never having struggles. In the fourth chapter, we are introduced to uh, two uh, ladies, two sisters in Christ who uh, had some sort of conflict going on. It's, you know, it, it, it piques the curiosity. I wonder what it was that they were fighting over the color of the carpet in the building or or what it might have been, um, uh, but uh, whatever it was, Yodia and Syntyche um, were, were struggling to get along. And when we face struggles of selfishness or uh, we're hurt by something, maybe it's something real, um, we need to maintain that holiness and seek to have the same mind in the Lord um, is the statement that's made in verse two, that these two sisters needed to be of the same mind in the Lord. I've often thought of that in the sense of they need to be in agreement on what the Lord has said on, on doctrinal issues. But I, I think that this text is really implying that, that this is not so much whether they were having a falling out over you know, some doctrinal question. It was probably more of a personal and individual issue, particularly based on the next verse or two. 
Um, which means that sometimes we don't always see eye to eye and maybe somebody gets on our nerves or whatever. But if we're going to have the same mind in the Lord, based upon the context of Philippians, what would that mind in the Lord look like? Well, I think about this. Go ahead. No, sorry, I cut you off. I thought you were. No, 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 please. I would, go, I would go back to earlier in Philippians, in Philippians chapter two, where Paul talks about the mind that we should have if we're going to have the mind of Christ. Um, and I'll start here in Philippians chapter two and verse one, where he says, if there is any exaltation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions, make full my joy that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, through pride, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. And then he brings in Christ as the preeminent example of this kind of mind. And he says in verse five, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ, which uh, who existing in the form of God counted not the being on an equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. So here's Christ who, who exists as deity, as God in the heavens, and he humbles himself, lowers himself to one of us for our sake. And if we will have that mind toward one another, then we're going to get along with each other a whole lot better. And so being of the same mind in the Lord, that text that you just read, look at how many times it mentions the mind. Uh, I know these aren't necessarily the same Greek words, but they're translated as being like, verse 2, being like-minded, the end of verse 2, of one mind. Verse 3, lowliness of mind. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We can even go up a little bit earlier to Philippians 1.27, uh, where he says that we need to stand fast in spirit with one mind. This tremendous emphasis on one mind, like-minded, same mind. What mind is that? The mind of Christ, the humble servant mind of Christ who was fully given, giving for, for others. You know, when I'm struggling with my sister or brother in the Lord, and I want, and I realize I need to have the same mind in the Lord with them. It doesn't mean that we just come to an agreement on whatever the issue is. It means that I adopt the attitude of Christ and being willing to, to give up everything to, to serve others. That's what a saint does. And, and, and tying that in, a, a, a saint slash servant, Philippians 1. Two other words. Go ahead, Chase. No, 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 no. I was going to do something different, so go ahead. Well, I don't know. I was going to do something different, too. I was going to go to two other words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. They'll be more on topic than probably what I was going to say, so go ahead, brother. It's Joe's show. Just, just be of the same mind, brethren. <laughs> <laughs> let, 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 let's, let's look at that Philippians 1 while we're there, uh, kind of a, a theme for the, for the day then. Uh, how about Philippians 1, 1? What were you going to say, Jeff? Deacons and bishops. So we take these words, saint, and bishops and deacons. And in our world, those are words that are basically just religious ecclesiastical words. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but particularly the word bishop and deacon uh, in the first century were really everyday words. You mentioned the idea of deacon. Uh, that's a servant. It's, it's actually a different word than the word slave. It's a, when Paul refers to himself and Timothy as slaves, he uses a, a word that talks about being owned by somebody. But when he uses the word deacons, uh, the word translated deacons, it's a word that could apply to somebody who was a slave or who was a free man, but it's being used with regard to the service that he performs. Uh, so in John chapter 2, when Jesus goes to the wedding feast at Cana, where he famously turned water into wine, there were servants that were directed to draw out the, the wine and take it to the, um, the, the, the Lord of the feast. I can't remember what he's called. Um, and, and that they were not necessarily slaves. They might have been people who were honored with the position of serving at the wedding, kind of like today when we have a wedding, you have your best friends if you're the bride, as you have the best friends as your bridesmaids, and then you have another group of friends who are your servers who serve the, the refreshments and that kind of thing. So, uh, so all right, the point being, deacons is not just an ecclesiastical title, it refers to some people who have some function within a community of Christians are especially responsible for performing some services. In Acts chapter 6, we see some men who are serving tables to take care of the widows. So there's that, and then there's the word bishop. So I'll let one of you guys talk about the word bishop a little bit. Go ahead, Chase. Yeah, so my translation, my translation says overseer. Um, it can sometimes be a little bit confusing because there are three Greek words uh, for the same kind of role that somebody's doing in the New Testament, but it's translated into six different English terms. And let's see if I can get them all off the bat. You guys can help me out. You've got pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd, um, presbyter, um, and I'm forgetting the other six, the sixth English word that's used. Um, Did you get bishop? I, I probably didn't get bishop. So yeah, that, there's your six. So anyways, it can be sometimes confusing, but uh, a really helpful place to kind of see what these guys were doing um, outside of maybe the first, second Timothy and Titus, I think is in Acts 20, uh, I think is a really helpful place to see where, what these guys were responsible for. When Paul is saying goodbye to the church in Ephesus, he's talking to these same men. Um, so in Acts 20 and verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So those overseers, the bishops, that idea. And uh, you'll jump down with me. And Paul is kind of rehashing some of the work that he was doing there with the Ephesians and with the elders. Uh, look at one of the things he'll say with them, Acts 20 and verse 27. Paul will say, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Jeff, does the ASV say bishops there? In Acts 20 and verse 28? Yeah. Uh, let me check real quick. I never can remember which it says. I know some say overseers and some say bishops. And in the American Standard Version, it actually does say bishops. Yeah, so that would be consistent. So same word over there in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. So uh, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, and for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Um, and so Paul is encouraging the church, the, the elders there, the overseers there, to shepherd the flock of God. I think it's really interesting. You can go to First Timothy and you can go to Titus and see what some of the qualifications or qualities for an elder or overseer are. But it's really in passages like this in Acts 20 where you learn what it is the overseer is actually called to do. Yep. Um, and Paul specifically is telling them, you need to look out for the flock. There's going to be savage wolves that come in from outside, and there might even be some people from inside the church that are wolves that will try to come in and to lead the people astray. But your job as the shepherds is to feed them, is to, to protect them from people like this, and to just constantly be on alert. So this, this is a serious job um, that these men are charged to do. So I was driving yesterday, and I was listening to Catholic Radio on XM Sirius as I was driving and there was a guy and he was just, he was just going through terminology pertaining to bishops and such. And he was explaining it all. He was saying, you know, the bishop, uh, when you, when you address him, you can say your grace, but then a bishop can get promoted and he can now be an art archbishop. And, and, and I may get this wrong, but I think this is what he said. Then you can refer to him as your excellency. And then he might get promoted again, and now he is a cardinal. And then you should refer to him as your eminence. Again, I may have mixed one or two of those up. I think that's the way he laid it out. But in general, you get the idea. And often that's what people think about when they think of these terms, bishop and deacon. They think of religious hierarchy, and they think of prestige, and they think of special robes that set them apart. And they think of them as the people who are holy and the rest of us aren't. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, as we've already been discussing, the Christians in the church at Philippi were saints. They were holy. These men who were described as overseers or bishops and servants or deacons, those words really have more to do with their responsibilities, uh, the service they perform within the kingdom of God on behalf of uh the Christians, whether it's a spiritual oversight, watching for souls, or whether it's rendering a service such as the deacons performed. But we, we miss the point if we focus on these as titles in a hierarchy, whereby somebody is set up on a pedestal. Yes. And let, let me just lead off of that for a second. I think sometimes when you hear like the word bishop or some of the other words that you just used, you think of this guy who's like sitting up in this office and he's locked in his office and he's just reading and reading and reading. But the real biblical shepherd, are shepherds clean people? They smell like sheep. They smell like sheep. They're out there all day in the field dealing with these nasty sheep, having to pull them out of all these different places and trying to, trying to work with them. It's not a clean job. You're going to get your hands dirty doing it. And I mean, the work of an elder or an overseer, he is going to be involved in some things that, that not everybody wants to have to deal with. Uh, it's not just this clean cut office where you're sitting up and you're just boxed off and you're just sitting there reading all day. No, you're, you're in there with the sheep trying to work with them and help them and keep them safe and look out for the wolves. It can be a dirty and nasty job. I think about uh, when David was, uh, was going to try and go up against Goliath. You guys remember one of the things he says to Saul and trying to convince King Saul to let him go out and do it? He says, I have yes. fought with bears and I have fought with lions. And the same God that delivered me from the bear and the lion 
deliver me from this Philistine. Um, and I just, I love that because it, it shows a shepherds weren't just cute little boys out there running around with sheep. It was a hard job. They, they had a lot to deal with, but it's relying on the strength of the, of the Lord to help them in those situations. To your point, I recently heard a situation where there was a, a, a marital situation and it was just a mess and it was brought to some men who were to be serving as overseers. Now, I don't know all sides of the story. I don't know the particulars, but at least on the surface, it sounded as if when it was brought to the overseers, they just didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to get in that mess. And uh, so to your point, a shepherd is going to end up in there taking care of the sheep. He's going to have to deal with the, the, the nitty gritty, some of the real problems that occur um, in the lives of the, of the flock that they're shepherding. Yeah, that's right. So when we, when we read it, overseer, pastor, shepherd, um, elder, realize that that's not an office per se. It is, it is referred to as an office. Don't get me wrong. The scripture bears that out. But we need to understand these terms as descriptors of the job that the Lord is calling them to do um, and understand it that way. Yeah, when, when we say office, we're not talking about a, a corner of the church building that has a window that looks out over the parking lot or whatever. Uh, that's not the kind of office uh, that, that we're describing, is it, Jeff? Um, it's yeah. With uh, a bunch of books in the background and, and stuff like yeah, that. that sort of thing. Um, yeah. there's, so, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But what we're describing is the position of the person, right? Um, what his role is. What it, some translations even will talk about their wor the work. Of, uh, of the bishop and it's the good men that we know that, that, that take that role serious uh, they don't think of that as just putting in some hours um chase you you refer you you mentioned that the bible does refer to it as an office i suppose you're thinking of first timothy 3 1 where the american standard says if a man seeks the office of a bishop yeah and, and that's a translation, uh, but very, very literally, it just says, if one desires oversight. What, what about Acts 1? I know that's talking about, it's talking about the apostleship, but that's also the same yeah. word for bishopric, isn't it? Another take, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, uh, episcopane, uh, bishopric, or overseership in Acts one twenty. Yeah, so overseership or oversight would, right. would do just as well there. And if you say it that way, then it really puts the emphasis more on the work than the title. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't mean office in terms of that's you run for or anything like that. That's, yeah. that's I was just trying to say, I, I wanted to acknowledge that that word is used to describe what's what, what the role is. Right. And, and I guess my, my point for, for bringing that up, and I knew that you and I agreed fully on that, but maybe for those that are listening, if, if your religious uh, affiliation is connected with men who expect titles such as your grace, who I could only think of addressing the Lord with that sort of a term, uh, the, the possessor of grace, um, uh, or, or reverend even, or your whatever the case might be. Yeah, now, uh, those things belong to the Lord, and don't cheapen the position of Christ by uh, calling men by terms which which they should reject. Spiritual men in Scripture absolutely rejected uh, exalting titles for themselves. 
uh, you know, Paul and, uh, and, and Barnabas, uh, they, they rejected being viewed as, as sort of gods um, in, in Acts 13. We ought not to even come close to that as a man, uh, Herod did in Acts 12, and it didn't end well for him. Um, uh, the Battle of Worms, he lost that. Um, so <laughs> about the, uh, um, uh, think about the, the way that your congregation may be uh, formed. It, it needs to be according to the pattern that we read about in the scriptures. Um, it ought not to be a, a man-made uh, decisions. Uh, follow the, the pattern that we find here. And, and Philippians 1.1 1, 1 is such a beautiful passage to key off of, to look for the meaning of these different words. And we are out of time today. Um, uh, it's amazing. It's gone by so fast. It seems like it's, we've only been talking for like 38 minutes or so, and it's already been 45. Um, uh, so uh, thank you all very much. And again, uh, as you're listening, uh, and uh, if you have some comments, feel free to add those uh, later, and maybe we can deal with them even in a, a future webinar. Uh, thank you very much, and, and God bless you all.